0: Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello everyone and welcome to our third episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today Dr. Starlin?
1: I am doing great Sarah and yourself?
0: Not too bad. I am very excited for our guest today. Um, I will actually let you introduce her since you know her better than I do.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an exciting day. We have Dr. Angela Hewlett joining us today. Um, she wears many hats here at uh, Nebraska Medicine and UNMC. She's a uh, uh, a chair of our biosecurity, as well as medical director of our biocontainment unit. She's also involved in orthopedic infectious disease and many other things. So welcome, Angela. Glad to have you.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. And uh, do you want to just give us a little bit of your background, Dr. Hewlett, of, you know, kind of how you got started and, um, you know, what really interests you in infectious diseases?
2: Sure. Well, I um, am a native Texan. I was actually born and raised in uh, Houston, Texas, and I always, um, I always thought I may want to be a doctor. I'm not sure why, honestly. There are no doctors or other healthcare workers in my family. Um, I just, for some reason, I like you know I like science in school and things like that, and I always just kind of gravitated towards that. I I think originally started with a veterinarian. That was my original intent. I think when I was in like first or second grade, and then after that, um, you know, I, I pretty much declared that I I probably was. You know, that I was interested in medicine pretty early on probably in middle school um, something like that and then when I went to college I went to University of Texas at Austin so our big state school um, you know took all the usual classes and things um, you know was not a huge fan of the giant classes in chemistry and you know whatever else But I I stuck with it. And I'll tell you, um, as I got into the smaller classes, I actually took a class on human infectious diseases. And that was, it was actually a night class. I remember it was from like six to nine at night, once a week. And, you know, so you'd go sit there for three hours, but I'll tell you what, this, I found it absolutely fascinating. And at that same time, I was uh, um, I was also enrolled in a, a laboratory class where we actually did a lot of work with different microorganisms. So things like salmonella typhi, I actually had to get a vaccine to work in the class, um, you know, things like that. And I, I thought this was like the greatest thing of all time at the time. I mean, I felt like I'd really found, you know, something I was interested in and, you know, this is what I wanna do for a living. So I also around that time read the book, The Hot Zone, um, which was a bestseller around that time. And it's about um, Ebola, fighting Ebola in Africa. And I'll tell you, that was another thing that I just, I mean, I, I just absolutely devoured that book and, and just really was, you know, became very interested in the field of infectious diseases in college. And so I pursued that through medical school at University of Texas um, in Galveston. And I, um, I, they called me the uh, embryonic ID fellow, actually, people, people used to kind of joke because I went up like I was a first year med student and basically went up and said, hey, can I come work in the HIV clinic? And they were like, well, why do you want to do that? We don't really do that to your third year. And it's like, no, you know, I, I think I think I'm interested in infectious diseases. So um, I had really declared that early on. And, um, and it was kind of a laughing matter when I Applied eventually for fellowship. I did my residency there as well, the same institution. And when I um, applied for fellowship there, I didn't even interview, um, and so they they just had me fill out the application. And I called and kind of said, "Hey, aren't you going to like take me out for dinner or something at least? You know, I don't know, but it was because I, I essentially had worked with them the whole time I was in school, and so um and they, so they took the embryonic ID fellow because I was sort of a known commodity. Um, and I could uh, finish my fellowship there also at University of Texas in Galveston, um, did a two-year clinical fellowship and then a one-year research fellowship um, and a master's degree actually focused in healthcare epidemiology and infected control. So my original life plan actually was to be a healthcare epidemiologist um, and I um, that changed a bit. We had a Uh, kind of a catastrophic event on Galveston Island. There was a huge hurricane that came through in 2008 and essentially wiped out our, the island, um, you know, closed our hospital for several months and was really, you know, terrible. And I was a research fellow at the time. Um, But, you know, it really kind of made me rethink, maybe I should start looking for an opportunity elsewhere. I had planned on staying on the island, planned on staying at that institution, which is a great place to work. Um, but in a sort of a weird, a weird way. And I, I, I don't even know how, I don't know at the time it, it seemed like this was sort of fate, but I went to an infectious disease society of America meeting as a fellow and was presenting a research project standing there next to my poster. And this man walks up, um, started talking to me about Nebraska and infectious diseases. And I was just, I don't know. I just assumed he was asking some questions of my research. I didn't, think too much of it. Turned out this was Dr. Phil Smith, um, who was the division director at uh, our Division of Infectious Diseases here at UNMC. And he asked me if I was interested in an opportunity, you know, to come work here at the med center. And I um, at first kind of blew it off and just said, you know, I've never been to Nebraska. I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, let me send you some information. And he was really strategic and sent some interesting information about Um, the city and the university and all of the things that were offered here and so yeah I came up for an interview and was was sold um, from the moment I arrived on campus and so the interesting part I guess is that part of that job description was not only to do orthopedic infectious diseases that was the original intent of the opportunity but also he said I need a partner to work in our biocontainment unit and I'd never heard of that Um, I didn't know that Nebraska had a biocontainment unit but where I came from in Galveston, we have a level four laboratory down there. um, And I was actually very interested in emerging infectious diseases. And, um, and so I I thought that would be a good opportunity. And when he gave me a tour, I thought, Oh, my gosh, how does anyone not I mean, this is so amazing. I mean, this facility um, and the team and all of that, and it just seemed like it it uh, really fell into place. And so that's essentially how I got here. Um, You know, since I've been here in Nebraska, really focused on orthopedic infectious diseases. So managing our bone and joint infection service, directing the orthopedic ID service, um, as well as uh, the biocontainment unit. And and Dr. Smith became my mentor here um, and is is still my mentor. Um, He retired fully in 2016. And so I uh, was originally associate medical director of the biocontainment unit until 2016 and then became medical director at that time so that was a long soliloquy but that's kind of where it started <laughs> and how it's going.
1: <laughs> awesome yeah Phil can be a very persuasive man he uh he got me here too as well he uh he tried when I was coming out of fellowship and I ended up as you know going into the to practice uh, and then uh Convinced me to come up and join his former private practice in 2004, so a little bit before you. Um, did he tell you the funny story about when he first arrived here? I think it was in about 1978. and He said he was moving in and he actually moved in next door to a surgeon who came over to him and, and asked him, you know, what he was doing, you know, and how he's here. And he introduced himself as an infectious disease doctor coming from, he came from Wisconsin. Um, and the surgeon looked at him and says, well, you might as well just pack your stuff up and leave because there aren- we don't have any infections here.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's an interesting story. I, obviously, obviously not true, as we all know. But um, but yeah, that, that's funny. Now, Phil is very convincing. Um, he. You know, and he's such a, in a very quiet way, you know, he doesn't really, I mean, he's, um, he's incredibly persuasive. And I'll tell you, though, he was really smart about it. I I essentially was saying, you know, I've never been to Nebraska. I don't, you know, I don't live in cold weather. I'm, you know, from Texas. I don't, I don't know what that would even be like. And, you know, the way he um, he helped me along, though, when I got here and really was a mentor, not only um, here at work, but also just with getting me kind of, you know, acclimated, you know, welcoming me into the community here. I mean, he's just yeah, he, I have I have gosh, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, he's just amazing man, amazing mentor. And yeah, we're, we're all very fortunate to have been able to work with him.
1: Couldn't agree more, couldn't agree more. Well, before you arrived, I actually had the pleasure of covering the biocontainment unit whenever Phil went out of town. I was the person that he always asked to be on call. So in your words, what is the biocontainment unit and what, uh, what makes it special and unique for something that uh, Nebraskans should be proud of?
2: Well, the biocontainment, Unit you know, was founded in 2005, actually, by, by Phil, um, who really had this vision at that time. And you have to think about what was going on at, in 2005. We had had SARS-CoV-1 actually in 2003 over in China, which, um, you know, had about a 10% mortality rate. Um, you know, it was very concerning at the time. Um, we then, there, there were quite a few imported cases, particularly into Canada, um, where they had healthcare workers get sick and die, um, you know, from that illness. And then there was a monkeypox outbreak, actually around that same time, around 2004, um, that affected several states actually here in the Midwest. And at that point, there were concerns, you know, as far as these, you know, highly hazardous communicable diseases. And do we have a place to care for patients like that? Do we have a safe place here in our hospital where we would really feel comfortable taking care of a patient with one of those diseases while keeping our healthcare workers safe. And so Phil really had this vision of let's build something. Um, you know Why not? Let's build a facility. Let's get a team together. And so that's what happened in 2005. He um, was able to work with our state health department a local health department, as well as our hospital um, to get a little bit of funding to sort of um, uh, revamp a unit that was already in place here at the hospital. It's an interesting unit though, because it actually was a pediatric bone marrow transplant unit, so it had its own air handling system, which makes it very unique and that it doesn't share air with the rest of the hospital. Um, we were actually able to put in quite a few interesting engineering controls to make it um, a really safe place to take care of patients with um, these highly hazardous communicable diseases, um, You know, like uh, monkeypox or uh, smallpox, Ebola, um, You know, uh, MERS-CoV. I mean, there's, there's quite a few on that list. And so, what he did though was get a team together as well, and that's to me the most important part of our, you know, biocontainment program. Is it's it's really not the facility. I mean, anybody can build something. You know, that's something that, you know, yes, it takes some work and it takes some funding and such, but those things can all be built. You know, we can all build facilities. But really, what it is is, you know, not only recruiting team members, and our team is all volunteer. That's the other thing. These, you know, our physicians, our nurses. Um, patient care techs, respiratory therapists, and others, laboratorians are all volunteers. So no one is compelled to work in this unit. Um, We, you know, we do it because we want to, because we want to do this kind of work. And, um, and it's, you know, it's exciting. It's different, um, different part of your, you know, something different from your daily job. But, you know, that's something that Phil and the kind of initial team members really had a lot of success with. They recruited a great group of people. um, And those people continued to, by word of mouth, recruit other people to our team. And so it's not only, Recruiting a good, you know, team, but also maintaining that team, and that's um, one of the success stories that I think we've really enjoyed over the years is our ability to continue to keep our team members engaged and excited. Um, and, you know, now we do. I mean, we have a place um, here at the Med Center where we can manage these diseases. And, and I'll tell you, this was really brought to a forefront in 2014 when we were selected by the government, um, you know, as a place that was capable of taking care of Ebola patients that were, um, you know, that were medically evacuated from Africa. So these were you know, um, uh, U.S. citizens who were, you know, were working over in Africa, you know, fighting the, you know, the ongoing Ebola outbreak at the time. And, um, and so, yeah, we were deemed capable of caring for those patients. And we did, we cared for three patients during that period of time. So, um, you know, and since then, we've, uh, we've had lots of developments as, as, as well, as far as new buildings and, you know, all sorts of new initiatives and things here on campus. Now, was that biocontainment unit
0: also used at the beginning of the COVID pandemic to care for some people as well?
2: Yeah, so in the very beginning of COVID, so in February of 2020, um, you know, at that time, there were obviously cases in China, um, there were, um, you know, there were individuals in China who were U.S. citizens who were actually put on a plane and brought back to the United States um, at that time, and they were, we had a, a plane load, actually, of people who were brought from Wuhan, China, so the epicenter of the um, of the outbreak, um, back to the United States, and they were brought specifically to Nebraska in order to be close to our biocontainment unit as well as the National quarantine unit, which is also here on our campus. Um, So that was our our first group of individuals. We also had a group of individuals from the Diamond Princess cruise ship who um, were also U.S. citizens who were, you know, went on a a really nice cruise, actually, and um, unfortunately had cases of COVID on the boat and ended up um, in quarantine over off the coast of Japan. And those individuals were um, actually other countries did the same. They brought their citizens back to their home countries for medical care um, in the very beginning of the pandemic. And so um, that group of individuals, were the, those were the, the first COVID patients in Nebraska. They actually were brought um, into, um, into our national quarantine unit if they did not have any symptoms or had very mild symptoms and brought into the biocontainment unit for care um, if they had more severe symptoms and needed to be hospitalized. Um, And then since then, we actually um, had cared for the initial COVID patients in Nebraska, uh, from Nebraska as well, and the community um, were initially cared for in the biocontainment unit. But that was in our, what we would call our biocontainment phase. And that was where, you know, we really were trying to contain this thing in the United States. I think very quickly, we realized that it was already out there. And so um, particularly with the fact that at the time, we did not really know about asymptomatic transmission, the fact that people could have no symptoms at all and still transmit this virus, Um, but it was out there, and so our our biocontainment phase ended, and then we went into what we would call our mitigation phase, and that was, um, you know, let's try to take care of everybody. Let's try to stop the spread of this in our community, so. It's
0: really amazing to find out that you have something this comprehensive and such a great team right in your backyard.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of our program and our team, um, you know, and I, I just, I, yeah, it's a great group of people to work with, um, and I really, I think we have a lot of really amazing things, not only the physical structures like the biocontainment unit and the National Quarantine Unit, but in particular, our programs and the people um, are really what, um, you know, what makes our, our program amazing. So yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of it, and I feel very privileged to be a part of the program. Yeah, it seems like this is the this is the team that you don't want to have to call, right? <laughs> but you're glad that you have it around. Exactly. Call them. Yeah, exactly.
1: The exactly. opposite of Ghostbusters, who you going to call, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely hear the pride in your voice when you talk about the team. And a big part of what you and your team do is educate, um, you know, locally, as nationally, internationally. And so you've probably had some... Uh, some interesting people that have come through that you've met as part of this whole thing and everything else can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you guys are doing education wise and just uh, um, regarding biosecurity throughout the country and the world sure
2: i mean we you know our educational initiatives really started um, when the biocontainment unit started i mean we um, you know locally started, uh, you know, going out to other hospitals to, um, you know, local health departments, um, you know, and, and talking about the management of patients with um, diseases like Ebola, um, or something of the like, you know, what type of protective equipment to wear, you know, how do we screen people, you know, all of that, that all started, you know, way back, actually, really, when the unit um, was, you know, was, uh, was built in 2005, um, on a much smaller scale, though, at that time, Um, and really, you know, we continued those efforts throughout our, um, you know, that initial time period really up into 2014. But then after we activated and, you know, for Ebola, I'll tell you that really, gosh, I mean, it was a real snowball effect. Um, It's sort of an explosion, if you will, of um, people just clamoring for information and and I understand why you know no Ebola patients had never been cared for on us soil before. This was entirely a new situation for everyone in the United States other than people that had responded to outbreaks overseas, you know and, and gone overseas uh, previously. but really the you know vast vast majority of people had never encountered something like this. and so, as soon as we opened the biocontainment unit, um, you know, in September of 2014 to take care of our first patient, we started getting calls. And they were, I mean, it was a lot of calls, um, you know, the calls were essentially incessant, um, you know, and unrelenting. Um, and most of them going through Phil Smith or myself or a lot of our other leaders within the unit, just asking every every kind of question, um, you know, clinical management questions, um, you know, what are you doing for these patients? How, you know, what type of labs are you ordering, you know, things like that. Um, and what type of protective equipment are you ordering? What are you doing with your waste? I mean, like, you know, how are you recruiting your team? It was just an absolute barrage of, um, you know, of of, uh, questions. And at the time, there were actually several institutions who were really on the forefront of you know preparedness. Who actually came out and visited? Um, they brought teams of people, and they were like teams of like 15 people um, from these institutions who actually came out and just wanted to kind of see what we were doing and to talk to us and you know um, to get a feel for how how they could bring up a program at their institutions. And so um, after that the sort of snowball effect continued where we started hosting courses here on campus um, in conjunction with the CDC actually and they were training programs for hospitals and they were incredibly well attended it was like standing room only Um, and those courses were the first kind of education courses focused on the care of patients with Ebola virus disease um, and you know what you need to do not only just for the medical care but um, you know but everything else too and really the medical care is a small part of it the everything else part is actually um, the majority and that is you know the infection control procedures and um, you know as I mentioned the, the facility and the team and all of that and so Um, we had people from all over the United States and actually all over the world who came to our campus um, to, you know, to learn about kind of how we had handled um, those first patients. And then from there, um, we expanded quite a bit. Um, We worked with actually two other institutions that had cared for Ebola patients here in the United States, Emory um, and uh, Bellevue in New York City. And we actually formed the National Ebola Training and Education Center, (NETEC) in 2015. And so this is an organization who really our our sole purpose was to educate, and that is to educate other hospitals, um, not just, you know, big academic medical centers either. We're talking about, you know, small hospitals, frontline healthcare facilities, because... Patients like this aren't going to, you know, necessarily choose the largest hospital in town to go to. You know, they may very well go to a local rural hospital and so every hospital needs to be prepared to at least identify the risk and isolate a patient um, and then potentially transfer elsewhere if they don't have the capabilities. But that uh, organization actually is, um, is funded by the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness uh, here in the United States. And um, it um, uh, you know, has been ongoing since 2015. And we do site visits to different hospitals. Um, you know, lots of hospitals actually we are doing now during COVID a lot of virtual calls and things and assessments lots of question and answer, you know, lots of drills and exercises aimed at um, at preparing institutions and, and hospitals to care for patients with highly hazardous communicable diseases. So, you know, since that time, the education efforts have you know, just really intensified. And then um, and then now we're focused on not only Ebola, but obviously other diseases as well. And COVID-19 was, is a good example that, you know, we really um, very quickly were able to put out some information, um, you know, put out some training videos and other things that could help people prepare to care for COVID patients back early in the pandemic. So, um, so yeah, I, I, a lot of educational initiative, that's, that's really a lot of what we do in the biocontainment unit is actually, um, you know, teaching others, um, which I, I really enjoy, so. So we, we have a lot of medical professionals that
0: listen to our podcast, and on that kind of topic of education and it's been really apparent that our healthcare system has was not prepared for this pandemic, right? There were a lot of barriers that we had addressed. Um, what are Dr. Hewlett's top three ways to be prepared to handle an infectious disease?
2: Well, I think first of all, you need to be, you know, understanding that this is going to happen. And I think all of, all of us knew this, right? I mean, we knew there was going to be another pandemic. Now, there was a pandemic in 1918, you know, that killed a lot of people. I mean, the great influenza pandemic, um, we all knew that this was going to happen again. And that that knowing that though still doesn't, it didn't mean that it was gonna happen in our lifetimes. We really didn't know, you know, but when we started seeing these cases early in um, in Wuhan, I mean, this was, you know, it was concerning. A lot of us were sort of hoping that this would go the way of SARS-CoV-1 and that is, you know, it really stayed for the most part isolated in, um, you know, in China with some cases that were, you know, were elsewhere, but not anything to the degree of, you know, of the scenario here. Um, You know, I believe there were a total of like, I think 2000, maybe 2500 cases total with SARS-CoV-1. But that was something that, you know, was a huge lesson to lots of people is, you know, we need to be ready for this. And, you know, not only ready to care for one or two patients, which really was the Ebola scenario, right? You know, you're going to care for one or two sick people who travel from overseas and come back with a bad disease. But this is obviously a whole whole new ballgame. So I would say number one priority is be ready and be thinking about, you know, this type of scenario. And just because it's happening now doesn't mean it's not gonna happen again. I mean, I'd like to knock on some wood there, um, you know, as far as I hope we have another, you know, another hundred years before it happens, but that may not be the case, you know, with global travel and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, just the number of humans sometimes concentrated in, you know, in one location um, in lots of parts of the world, this diseases are going to going be there. And and so this is something that I think we all need to be, to ready for the next pandemic as well. So I guess that would be number one. Number two is make sure that you have your, um, you know, your facility in check. So make sure you have all of the resources that you need, you know, that you have protocols for identifying sick people in your intake areas, like your emergency department or your clinics or radiology. I mean, people can come into all different parts of your healthcare system and you need to be ready to identify those individuals, um, whether this is influenza or um, COVID-19 or anything else. You know, if you have somebody who comes in with a fever and a cough and that sort of thing, make sure that you do all the infection control things that you need to do. Isolate that individual, make sure that they're not sitting out in your waiting room and, um, you know, with with others. And so, you know, I, hospitals need to be prepared on lots of fronts for, um, you know, for really detecting those, those individuals. So we always kind of say Um, you know, identify, isolate, and inform. That's our mantra. So, identify that you have a person that's ill, um, isolate that individual, and then inform, you know, infection control, your, um, you know, your healthcare workers, get everybody kind of ready. And so, I guess, you know, number two is make sure that your facility has the upfront, um, you know, protocols in place to make sure that they can identify a risk when um, when an individual comes in with a, you know a certain symptomology or concern for travel or you know that sort of thing, um, and then I guess the last of it is you know have some some way to um, you know to assist your healthcare workers while they're doing this kind of work. I I, I can't emphasize enough the. Um, the toll that this this type of thing has taken on our our healthcare community, um, and whether you're a physician or a nurse or you know really anybody else working in a hospital system, um, or in in you know in other outpatient facilities as well. I mean, people are taxed, you know, and so we need to have the resources to make sure that we have adequate staffing, that we're able to um, relieve people, that people are able to go home and um, you know and have some time away from the hospital. Um, that we have um, we have. Um, uh, you know, support for our healthcare workers to make sure that, you know, that we have, um, uh, you know, uh, programs in place to provide um, psychological support if needed, you know, counseling, things like that. Because this is, this has been, I mean, we, we all know uh, this has been one heck of a couple of, you know, year and a half. I, I just... It's it's taken a real toll on people, and I can see that in my colleagues. Um, I can see, especially now with this, the you know impending kind of delta variant surge that we're seeing here in Nebraska. Um, you know, we're on the kind of early end of that, but I think we're going to see a lot more cases. Um, you know, people are tired. We were feeling kind of good a couple of months ago. You know, things were doing were doing better. We were um, you know we were seeing some lower numbers in our community and throughout the United States. But really, um, you know, that all went away, and I think. You know, I have this sort of sinking feeling that had been there through pretty much all of 2020 um, up until really about May of of this year, and that seemed to go away for a couple of months, and now it's back. And so I guess I I just want to emphasize the need to, um, you know, to support healthcare workers throughout this process because we really are on the front lines of, um, you know, of caring for patients with any highly hazardous communicable disease, but um, particularly on an ongoing long you know, pandemic like we're dealing with now.
1: Angelia, thanks for that third point there. I was just going to ask you about um, how we can, uh, you know, how do you evaluate that you know you're giving the adequate protection to healthcare workers? Uh, You know, I think it's a big concern, especially early in the pandemic, when we have something that we don't really know how it's spread um so to make sure that they're safe people were worried about bringing it home to their loved ones and their friends and and, and everything else and so i think you touched on the, the there's the physical toll but then there's also the emotional and psychological toll that i think this has put people through that uh we definitely need to continue to focus on and i, I think honestly figure out for the next pandemic how we can do better uh we have to look back and learn from this One thing that I guess the question is, is that we as infectious disease uh, providers and infection preventionists, and you and your role as biosecurity and everything else, this stuff is gonna stay on our mind. How do we keep it in administrators' minds, uh, uh, representatives and leaders at the regional, local, state, national level, so that we don't slide backwards and forget that this happened and not provide uh, Funding. What can people do to just make sure that we don't forget about this?
2: Well, you know, I think I think we need to continue to remind people, and and this has to be an ongoing process. I I, I know that, and, and if you think about history, um, and Ebola is actually a great example of that you know during the. You know, concern when we were taking care of patients here and in other places in the United States, um, there was all sorts of funding kind of thrown at preparedness at that time, um, you know, whether that was formation of some of our educational organizations or, you know, supplying hospitals with PPE or, you know, things like that. But then, you know, over the years, I mean, this was in 2014, that sort of starts to dwindle away and people forget, you know, I mean, people have actually really short memories when it comes to, um, you know, to this type of thing. And that's been really, um, you know, again, well kind of documented throughout, throughout history of infectious diseases. So, you know, this has been, you know, a long, obviously long road, ongoing pandemic, but, you know, eventually this will taper off, I'm not sure if we'll ever not be seeing cases of COVID-19, but we're not going to be seeing cases to the degree that we are, you know, now. Um, And you know we, what we need to do is just continue to remind people this needs to continue to be on the minds of administrators of funding agencies we need to not try to reappropriate funding that was originally intended for covid 19 preparedness to something else that's that's happened and it happened with ebola you know um let's take the funding that we were going to give for preparedness and put it somewhere else because oh that you know, that happened several years ago and we forgot about it, um, we we really need to continue to remind people and whether that's reminding um, um, through our political chains, which is, is part of the funding mechanism, you know, through a government, um, whether that's reminding our hospital administrators, um, you know, infectious disease folks, we're not, we're not going to forget this <laughs> probably ever, um, not even probably ever, um, but, you know, this experience, Has I I hopefully has really taught us that we need to be, we need to be more ready. I mean, we, I feel like we were more ready than we were with Ebola in 2014, but we were not ready. Um, We were not ready for this degree, for this amount of spread, the number of sick people in our hospital. Um, PPE obviously was a huge issue, especially early on in the pandemic. We can't let that happen again. And we need to continue to really fight and be on the forefront of um, you know, making sure that we're, you know, that hospitals are adequately funded and that we have um, the ability to continue to, to do this work to, for preparedness.
0: Those are all really
2: great points. And I know
0: for me and I'm sure a lot of other infectious disease and infection preventionists out there, it's been really frustrating to see how quickly people are wanting to go back to normal um, and just kind of ignoring the problem, um, but hopefully we can continue to remind them, as you said, and continue to fight the good fight.
2: Yeah, I mean, looking away from the problem is really not an option, and and I I would say I, I've experienced this. I know we all have. Um, you know, personally, going out to you know, the store or going to see, um, you know, to an event or whatever else where we see people around us behaving completely normally, like nothing ever happened. Um, And it's very difficult actually to know, especially now with this surge of the Delta variant to be, you know, to have the knowledge that we do as infectious diseases and infection preventionists, um, and to see all of that occurring, because, you know, this is, and this is probably a bit pathologic, but honestly, I I see viral transmission everywhere. I mean, like when I see groups of people together, I know that, you know, the virus is going to be there um, because I know that our vaccination rates here in our community are not as high as they should be. They're not terrible um, like some other places in the United States, but they're not as high as they should be. And there's still a lot of very susceptible individuals, um, you know, who are out there. And so when I see groups of people together, it, it really does, it bothers me. Um, and it, it still continues to bother me because I, I feel like I... I I just I I want I want those people to understand what's actually going on. And I really wish that some of the folks that are reluctant to get vaccinated or, you know, or are out there gathered in big groups and sort of ignoring, you know, that the virus is still out there. I I want I I wish they could kind of come and see what I see, um, what we see, you know, what the ICU doctors and the ICU nurses see, because it is not. It is not pleasant, and we we take care of sick people all the time. You know, this is not a new thing. Obviously, we're physicians and nurses. This is what we do. But um, but this, gosh, this is this is different. Um, and it is it is incredibly um, disheartening to see people sort of turning their head and just saying, "Let's all go back to normal. Everything's okay." Unfortunately, that's not the case. And I, I wish I would give anything for that to be the case right now. But um, and hopefully someday we will. Um, emerge out of this thing. But gosh, right now, it's, it's, a, it's a tough time right now, both in our community and, and in the U.S. and throughout the world. Um, and there are a lot of places throughout the world that are definitely in dire straits right now um, because they have lack of access to vaccination whereas we really don't have as much of that in the United States. I mean, there are definitely pockets and, and groups um, that have had lack of access to vaccine, but we're very fortunate to have at least, um, you know, vaccines on hand at a lot of places, um, it's free, you know. So I, I, I don't know what else to say about that, honestly, but it is very disheartening to see sometimes um, what's going on in the community and sort of the people that are ignoring, um, you know, the current trends.
1: Very well said. Now we can move on to a little bit more fun stuff. And I'm not trying to (laughs) embarrass you here. Sounds good. Being on our little show here, we're hoping, you know, 10 people listen to us. And not too long ago, you were on a little bit bigger show that airs on Sunday night. And I just have to ask you, what was that like? I mean, that has to be Uh, amazing. I'm sure your whole family has recorded this and and everything else is going to be shown to your grandkids and everything. Uh, That that had to be quite the event.
2: Yeah, so I think, I I assume you're referring to 60 Minutes? (laughs) Yes. Okay, yeah, so I I will say I've, I've done a fair amount of media, um, mainly just, just starting essentially in 2014 um, we we had what we were affectionately calling and the folks at Emory had a kind of a similar situation when we were taking care of our Ebola patients we called it camp camp Ebola where we had the media essentially camped out on part of our part of our campus and we did all kinds of media because i really felt like at the time you know we all felt like we wanted to really get information out there you know to um, to kind of let people know not only what we're doing but what they can do to prepare um, you know for um, for caring for Ebola patients patients and for, you know, and really let people know what was going on. So I have had some experience with, you know, with media um, prior. That being said, 60 Minutes was was different. I mean, this was, you know, a, an incredibly um, in-depth and long um, interview, um, one-on-one. And I'll tell you what, though, what was kind of exciting for me, which sounds a little superficial and kind of crazy, was when I showed up to do the interview, um, there was this woman there with like this giant briefcase of makeup. And she said, I'm, I'm going to do your hair and makeup. And I thought, oh my gosh, you've got to be. I mean, like coming, I, I don't even remember what I was, what else I was doing that day, but it's like, I had not really thought too much about hair and makeup, but sure, I'll let you do it. And so actually that was, that was kind of cool. Um, but no, just just, um, you know, just the interaction there. I can definitely see why 60 Minutes is such a successful show is because the questions that were asked were incredibly in-depth and very thoughtful. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was actually a really pleasant experience. It was like I was talking to a friend. Um, and so they, they really set it up that way. And, um, and yeah, so I'm, I've definitely, um, I've definitely become a, become a fan of that show after, after being on it. But, but no, media is something that you know, I, again, have have definitely dealt with, as have a lot of us, especially throughout COVID, um, just because I, I do think it's a really important component of, um, you know, of being an ID doc, honestly, to, you know, let people know what we're doing, get things out there, uh, make sure that we're giving good information so that people have the ability to, um, you know, to get educated on different topics and things like that from reliable sources. Um, so, you know, I do think that's a, re- like I said, a really important part of, you know, what we do. So now we are in the presence of a movie star, right? I'm going to, I'm
0: going to need your autograph, Dr. Hewlett.
2: (laughs) I don't know about that. There there was, we did have a documentary actually created about us as well um, that NET TV did, um, which was was actually very, uh, yeah, this was created about our our biocontainment team um, back a few years ago. And and that was also a very interesting experience, Um, another very well researched, you know, um, these uh, these cameras followed us around for a really, really long period of time. We were doing outreach courses and things like that in outstate Nebraska. They were out there, they were here on campus, kind of everywhere. Um, and that um, that program is called After Ebola and actually aired on uh, NET um, as well as uh, PBS affiliates around the United States. So, um, so that was also an interesting experience. So I've, I've had quite a few, um, quite a few brushes with media. And again, I, I, I definitely um, you know, I, I feel like that that really is part of my job. Um, and, and I do enjoy some of it. It is, it is, um, interesting and exciting in a lot of ways. And, um, but I, I do think that getting good information out there is, is really an important component of, um, you know, of what we do.
1: One thing we ask each of our guests is what's the worst thing that you've seen medicine wise?
2: Oh gosh. Um, the worst thing I've seen, well, I, I guess, you know, Depending on how you look at it, I I would say that the initial days with the Ebola patients were pretty rough. Um, And the reason I would say that is because at that time, there really wasn't anything known about what to do with these patients, how to manage them, um, what labs need to be drawn. There were really no information out there about um, what patients' labs look like, what, um, you know, there were no therapeutic agents really that had been approved or even really tested in humans, um, you know, to a, a reasonable degree. And so those days were, were pretty, pretty rough early on. But I guess as an infectious diseases doctor, I'll, I'll be really honest, and I use this a lot when I'm on the clinical service, Um, The scariest thing that I see clinically are necrotizing infections. And so I see things like necrotizing fasciitis, where patients come in, one minute they're kind of okay, and the next minute they are not, and going to the operating room and having, you know, very sort of catastrophic consequences with major surgeries and things like that. So I, those infections to me, um, you know, the group A strep infection and the completely healthy young person that has nothing but athlete's foot and then has a little small cut on their foot from that and ends up, you know, ends up getting this horrible necrotizing infection, um, you know, that's debilitating. Those, those are the, I think clinically the scariest infections that, I, you know, that I've seen. Um, but I, and I think a lot of people would probably agree that, you know, we, we do everything we can. We throw lots of antibiotics at people, but just the um, the aggressiveness of um, of those types of infections is always um, really humbling to me. Um, to you know, to say we're doing everything we can, but gosh, this is a terrible infection, and um, you know, it may not be enough. So, I guess those are you know those are my two kind of worst case scenario situations. Yeah. So we've just got a couple minutes left. Do you have any questions
0: for Dr. Starlin or I? <laughs> Feel free to rack our brains. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well I don't know let's see I, th- I thought we were going to ask other things like you know what do we like to do outside of work too I think um that's and I, I kind of know what Dr. Starlin I think likes to do just in the fact that I we share a, a love of travel um and um and particularly to warm warm beachy type places and we uh, we often um reminisce about our days of travel particularly during the um you know early COVID days when we were all kind of stuck at home and such and miss really missing um, our ability to go out and explore and do things so I guess Sarah I guess I would ask you what do you what do you like to do outside of work what are the things that that you try to do to decompress after you get home from your job Uh, well my
0: my hobbies are mostly weekend hobbies I am a photographer and a paranormal investigator so I go to haunted locations and take pictures of dark creepy hallways that is what I love to do
2: Okay. That's like super cool. I guess I was not expecting that. I don't know if I've ever met a paranormal investigator before, but yes, that, that, wow. Okay. I don't even know what to say, but that's pretty damn impressive actually. And I know I'm going to have to hear more about that at some point.
1: Yeah. I interviewed her like for the first podcast and I didn't even get that out of her. So I didn't know that until just now either. That's, that's amazing. We we definitely have to do that.
0: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I am trying to get our team to do like a, a team building thing at a haunted location with me. And everyone's like, it's really mixed bag. They're either like,
2: yeah, I'm all in, or no, I'm not.
1: <laughs> Ghosts can get infectious diseases.
2: Yeah, we're, we're actually gonna question. have to do, uh, we're gonna have to investigate that a little further offline at some point because we do team building activities with the biocontainment unit team. And actually I think that was, this would be something they would be really psyched about. Yeah. Yeah, so.
0: there's a couple of really good locations that are local that we could do, so. Cool.
2: Wow, all right. Yeah. And Rick, and I've got all the equipment for everybody to use. okay (laughs) awesome wow okay all right uh rick any other things other than our our shared love for uh for exploration and travel
1: Uh, mostly i mean that's what we spend most of our time when we're not at work doing i think figuring out the next place i guess planning trips is almost a hobby because it seems like you have to have one on the books most of the time except for during covid so I'd say that's uh, largely, and we share some of the places that we like to go, as you said. So uh, we'll have to do it together sometime whenever we can finally uh, travel abroad again.
2: Yeah, I keep saying we need to like, you know, get a bunch of people together and pool our resources and see if we can rent some sort of, uh, you know, private island somewhere or something like that and just kind of go sit for a while. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I
0: mean, we could all go to uh, Doll Island in Mexico. And just hang out there,
2: paranormal. Okay, I'll tell you what, I... (laughs) I, I, especially during early COVID, I think a lot of us were getting just very itchy to do anything. And so I, I, I um, became pretty good at COVID safe travel, um, you know, and going and renting a private home somewhere. I have a whole cleaning protocol. I've got the whole the whole business. Um, now I feel more comfortable, but as you know, being fully vaccinated and having my whole family fully vaccinated, but that being said, still very cautious and, um, you know, make sure that I'm you know, doing all the right things and, um, and, but at least, at least able to get out there a little bit more. And, um, and yeah, I think, I think that's something that I was really kind of in. I was taught growing up and sort of ingrained in me by my family is, you know, you have a lot of, um, you can always kind of go and, you know, make money and, um, you know, work and do those sorts of things. But in actuality, um, what you really need to do is make memories and and the way that we make memories is to go places. And so, um, so I think, you know, like Rick was saying, my, I enjoy trip planning in sort of a weird way. I, I probably should, I've always said that if I weren't a doctor, I think maybe a travel agent would be a second career for me because I enjoy planning trips and, um, and kind of getting it and seeing it all come together um, and traveling to, to cool places
1: it fits with our obsessive compulsive nature. It gives us some measure of control over where we're going and what we're getting into. And that's a a kind of is a, a, an I type a ID doctor to the T, right?
2: That's totally, totally right. Yes. And, and definitely fits my, my personality. Yeah. I kind of like to be um, in charge of things and whether that's, you know, planning a trip and seeing everything executed and, you know, whatever else, um, correctly. And, um, and yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely a lot of that that goes into travel planning and infectious diseases too. All right. Well, thank
0: you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hewlett. Um, if we have, uh, any of our listeners that want to follow you on social media, where can they find you at?
2: Well, I'm on Twitter for sure. Um, and, um, and yeah, happy to, um, to, you know, I've, I do tweet quite a bit, um, you know, mostly lately COVID-related things, but also other things too, bone and joint infection management and other things. Uh, my other hat I wear other than biopreparedness is um, is the management of musculoskeletal infections, and I um, am the president of the Musculoskeletal Infection Society, and um, and that's something that I'm also very proud of, and I do, you know, a, f- a fair amount of tweeting on, you know, on those types of topic as well. So, um, so yeah, you can find me on um, on Twitter, um, at Hewlett, uh, Angela. Very good.
1: We will have to have you back on again to discuss those bone and joint infections in the future. It was fun. Thank you so much for being on with us today.
2: No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been fun talking to you guys, and I think we're, we'll definitely have to investigate that whole paranormal uh, activity uh, situation. <laughs> that's, that's something I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you about that. I, I find that uh, incredibly interesting and very intriguing. So, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to our listeners for joining us for today's episode and we will catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of dirty drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy dirty drinks.